23, 27, or 47 to 49. Luke 23, 47 to 49. Just returned from a refreshing vacation with family. Two of our grandchildren have a grandson by the name of Jake. Jake is a moving target. Jake will spend more time on the top rim of the sofa than he does the cushions. He is in the air more than anyone in our family because there isn't anything that he hasn't jumped off of. He is a bundle of energy and life and enthusiasm and all he wants to do. And he'll let you know it by asking you, will you play with me? And we have been doing some playing. We take him to this toy store in Seaside, Florida. And I said, Jake, to be honest with you, I think you've had everything in the store. It's not that big a store. I think we've bought you everything in the store. But he seems to always find something that he hadn't gotten before. He likes Legos. And I said, my wife and I had been to the Mall of America in uh, Minneapolis, and we saw some Legos that were 40 feet tall, constructed, big deal. Well, he finally went and saw them. Well, that's all he needed. I thought he would needed something else. I, I, thought, I didn't think he needed anything else to get more of a passion for Legos, but that put him over the edge. So his father bought him a Lego thing to put together, for nine plus years old, and it cost about a hundred bucks. I got him the 63 model, $63 model. <laughs> and <clears throat> he opened that box, sat down on the floor, and he didn't move for four straight hours. Literally did not move out of a two-foot circle. Read every page of the instruction manual. Here's a kid who's going to grow up on Christmas morning with his kids and read the instruction manual. How many people read an instruction manual? <laughs> he read every page, put together every piece. Some of the pieces were, were only a, a centimeter big. And came up at the end of the day with this model it could have been a centerpiece in the dining room table. And I watched that kid. He was aware of everything that was in the room, but he never took his eyes off the manual. And he went through 10 bags of things to put together sequentially until he finished. And I was taken aback by that because I am in a season of my life, in, in life and in ministry, when I am enamored with the idea of, and preoccupied actually with the idea of focus. Focus. Um, intentionality and focus are something that I'm highly interested in. Specialization. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in um, this church understanding its specific role in the kingdom. You understanding your specific role in your family, in your life, in your work, in the workplace. What's your specificity by which God will bear more fruit than any other area of your life? I am very in tune with that. 
as is Jake. Said another way, I am really not interested in distraction. Not any kind of distraction. Don't want it, don't need it, don't want to create it, don't want to bolster it. I just want to be undistracted. Like my grandson. And then I'm, I want to know, not only are there distractions in life, there's distractions that we all live with, that we all have to come up against, but there are other distractions, quite frankly, that we don't, we don't really know are distractions, we don't really realize they're distractions, and they're, they're uh, undercover uh, distractions. They're, they're in plain clothes, in plain sight, and, and not only that, they're within us. We've been tricked into thinking that the distractions come from the world. Well, that's true, but there is within us distractions that keep us from our individual callings in life. And they become so prevalent, so common, so expected that we don't see them as distractions. I want to talk to you about that today. And it comes out of this narrative of Luke 23, 47 to 49. Jesus has been on the cross for some time now. And the centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely, surely this was a righteous man. Quite a statement from a Roman centurion. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. He had just died. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Interesting. Let's talk about the centurion for a moment. The centurion had likely seen many people crucified. Crucifixion at this particular point in time was, was, a, was a gruesome uh, display of horror uh, that oftentimes would cause the, the least in the, in the culture to be executed by way of crucifixion and would actually go along a road so that those coming into town would get the point, don't, don't mess around here. This, you're gonna follow the law, you're not gonna steal, you're not gonna murder, you're not gonna be a creep. You're gonna end up on this tree here. It was a statement to all who even thought about doing wrong, but this is the way we handle that. This is the way it's gonna be for you. Nowadays, you come into a town and it has a welcome to XYZ City and has the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, <laughs> the Chamber of Commerce, welcome, come see us. No, the Romans had a different idea. There was no Lions Club. There were lions. There, there was like, this is it, man. I'm gonna show you what this is all about. And it was grotesque and it was sickening. It was, uh, it was so nasty, the stench was so bad. Uh, once the cadaver got mingled up with the birds and the buzzards, it got just so sick. Listen, you didn't stand around and watch. It was not a spectator sport. It was not something that you would like go out on a Saturday afternoon to watch. It was something you avoided. You didn't even go down that road if you had an alternative. The, the crucifixion was horrible, horrible. It wasn't until Constantine in 300 AD finally abolished it. But my goodness, it had gone on for a long time. So this centurion had seen crucifixion. He knew the ins and outs of it. He knew the, the, the sights, the sounds, the moans, the groans, the writhing, the pain, the piercing. He knew all of that. 
He had seen hundreds of people die. In, in grotesque manners, he saw them die. He, he could probably tell you what's going to happen next, not, not unlike a hospice nurse could tell you what's going to happen next in the last moments of a person's life. He knew it. And all he could say is, surely, <laughs> this was a righteous man. What, what I'm saying here is that this man watched Jesus die unlike anyone ever died and probably had heard that he lived unlike anyone else had ever lived. But when you start saying and throwing around verbiage in the middle of a crucifixion, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, when you start throwing that out there, you now put yourself into your own category. No one had ever said that. No one had ever thought that. All that those people ever that died on the cross wanted, they wanted to die or they wanted vengeance or they wanted to mock or curse the person who put them up there. This is what he's familiar with, this centurion. He says, surely this was a righteous man. Now legend has it, this guy went on to be a martyr for Christ, a leader in the church. None of that, I don't think, can really be proven at this point, but nonetheless, I like the idea of it. I'll tell you this, he did not leave that encounter with Christ on the cross the same as when he showed up for work that day. That was a game changer. Surely this was a righteous man. Notice he says, was. Though he didn't have all the information, he decided that that death was an ending, not a beginning. Some who sat, sat or stood far away and watched, they kind of thought it was an end, didn't know if there would be a new beginning, and some people just thought there would be a new beginning. Everyone's in a different place. So when the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. There's a lot of people there that day. And among those many people were those who probably shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They probably mocked him, they spit upon him, they cheered on the Romans, they did whatever they had to do to get on the good side of those who were hurting him. Yeah, those people were like in a frenzy for death. The religious elite stood on, everybody wants this guy, he's a troublemaker, he's a thorn in our own flesh. For whatever reason, let's get rid of him and let's enjoy the fact that he's dead, okay? That's what they're saying, he's dead. Yeah, but those very same people that came to see him die and rejoice at his death are now beating their chest as they walk away. Something happened that day. Could it have been the six hour unusual circumstances and the three hours of the single most eerie and odd darkness of an, like an eclipse you've ever seen in your life? Could that have somehow got them thinking, there's something different here. This isn't like every other guy I've ever seen die at a cross, or heard about for that matter. They had gathered, and they were jolted, jolted like into a new reality the father not wanting to miss one morsel, one crumb of something to put into another human being's soul, wanting to be the best steward of this crucifixion opportunity for all who were there, they left weeping and mourning the loss of a man they wanted dead hours before. That's incredible. All the people who had gathered to witness this sight salivating over the prospect of a death, a new season, one who was gonna be the cause of their insurrections, one who deserved to die, who thought he was God. This is, 
This was a time to rejoice, but that yet they're mourning over the loss of this one they came to crucify. They beat their breast and went away. Jesus Christ is remarkable in life and in death. The authority with which he spoke, Mark 1 and 22, amazed people, for he spoke with his authority unlike the teachers of the law. The longer you're around him and the longer you know him, the more obvious it is he's in his own category. There are no parallels. There are no comparisons. There were, it's just him set aside. He can actually, in his death, the most brutal of deaths, minister to a person who wanted him dead and hated him with every fiber of their being. He could actually do that in death. Not by what he said, as much as what he didn't say. Maybe what he didn't do. You say, what can you do on a cross? You can do a lot. You could die with respect and dignity. You could ask for the forgiveness of your abusers and your accusers. You can do things that no one even thought existed on this earth. You can do it and change the human heart even as you die. The manner in which you die, I'll go ahead and tell you up front. I truly believe this as a pastor. You know how you make provisions, legal provisions for resuscitation, no resuscitation, a living will, and these other things? That has its place. Having just been through that with my father, I know it has its place. But listen, have a conversation with yourself and the Lord about two things. If I am currently ill and it's serious, or if I ever get seriously ill, God forbid, how am I gonna make that illness a ministry to other people? How am I, what is my mindset? How do I approach it? How do I leverage the illness and the fact that I could die to benefit other people? How can I make an impression upon those people if I am going to perish? How do I die with dignity? How do I die with respect? How do I die in such a way? How do I perish as Jesus perished that would cause a man to ponder something in his heart he had never thought about before? Who do you forgive? Willingly, openly, sincerely. See, this is serious. It's not, it's not whether you and I are gonna die, it's how we're gonna die. How are we going to prepare for that moment and leverage out of it every iota of fruitfulness we can actually take because at that moment, it's not about us, it's about the people. It's a great question. If you will take me up on it. How are you going to die? If you have that luxury, how will you minister to others? How will you minister to your family? What will you leave with them? What will you say? What will you not say? How will you embrace them? What will you say to your grandson or granddaughter that will leave a legacy, an impression upon them for years and years to come? What story will you tell and how will you die in a way that they tell the story again or tell the story of your death as though it happened yesterday? Jesus was used by the Father to minister to people in his death. He didn't question whether he would die, nor how he would die. All he questioned is how shall I fulfill the prophecies that have been given to me in my death? There's only a few left. 
one of which was being forsaken by the father, casting lots for his robe. How are you gonna die? They beat their breast and went away. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. He knew that if he was lifted up in worship or lifted up literally on a cross, he knew that that experience of that death had the potential to draw even the centurion to himself. That's faith. We, we sometimes say, I can't minister to so-and-so, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how to do that, or whatever. Jesus didn't do anything but hang, hang. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't have to do anything or very little to impact somebody with your life. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. When my wife and I and kids first moved to this area, we ate in homes. I don't think we had our own meal in our own home for like three years. Looking back on it, I just, I was immersed in this culture. We went and saw all these homes. These homes had high ceilings. I had never seen so many beams in my life. Everyone had beams. Everyone had appetizers. That was not a complaint. Everyone had great food, great fellowship. And everyone had, if you want to know what we do in the winter, I'm about to tell you, we go to each other's houses and we eat. Where it's warm and there's a fire. Every country club has a fire in August in the mountains. There's something about a fire. Well, there's a nuance, there's a subculture I want to introduce you to. So when we would go to all these meals, meet all these people, get to know the people in the church, the, head, the, the, the guy that's the head of the fire, the firekeeper, the dad of the family, he had to tell you about his fireplace. Yeah, I got this model. He would correct me on how I stack wood. I, when we mistakenly had people over, I was graded on how I put the wood in there, how often, whether it was killed, dried, not killed, oak, whatever. Did I use a gas starter? It's a science to these guys. It has something to do, it's deeply tied to their masculinity. I just let it go. I learned I agreed at every house I went to, that's the way to do a fire. And then the next night I said, yes, that's the way to do a fire. Then they started telling me about this, this fire, I forget what it's called, it comes out like this. I got my education on fires. So now, I'm, uh, after 13 years, I'm getting ceramic logs. <laughs> so if you wanna come over to my house, I'll tell you how to hit the remote. <laughs> But the point is, when they started that fire, you see, it started to get a little warm. And the cool air sometimes coming down would be stronger than the hot air rising. You would say that the fireplace hasn't drawn yet. So when that cool air would come down, sometimes it takes the ashes and blows them out into your living room, at least it does ours, which is another way of saying, Gary, you need to clean the fireplace. Hence the ceramic logs. <laughs> but when that, when that heat got going, and the heat moving up was stronger than the cold moving down, it would draw, it would draw. That's what people do when they come to Jesus. 
They, they see him. He, he's tepid. He's not necessarily hot. Not cold, not hot. And they want to splash a lot of cold on him. A lot of cold, and blow, a lot of, blow a lot of cold air on him. But you start to lift him up. You start to worship him. You start to glorify him. You start to praise him. You start to love on him. It heats up. And it'll take a centurion and draw him right up the flue. He was worthy of worship on the cross. Surely this was a righteous man. Coming from a man who saw so many unrighteous men. Are you heating up the people in your life and thus drawing them up to him? Turn up the heat. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. All who knew him were there. Again, this is unheard of. You don't go out to watch a crucifixion like you would a ball game. They were all there. As you know, John and Mary were at the feet of our Lord, and many others were at a distance, including the women who had followed him from Galilee. Luke describes the women and their names, and finally gets so, there gets to be so many of them and their roles and what they do that he just can't list them anymore. He just starts to call them as a group, the women who followed Jesus. We were talking about this at dinner the other night. Jesus has done more for women than anyone in the history of civilization. He's done more to recognize and show respect for a woman and her role than anyone. Anyone. With just a few encounters, he changed the paradigm on how to understand how to appreciate, how to respect, and how to love a mother, a daughter, a grandmother, a wife. But they stood at a distance. Reading a book recently by Bob Goff, I don't know anybody, maybe you've read, he, read a, he wrote a book called Love Does, and uh, in this particular book I'm reading now, he's a Christian man. He's older and kind of humorous, and he's odd. Let's frankly, he's odd. His ministry is that of oddness, which I like. And he <clears throat> tells the story of a, of a mother and father who went to a garage sale one Saturday, and what they wanted to do was pick up something, you know, a goodbye. Wanted to haggle a little bit, get something nice, maybe for someone in their family, and they saw some pile of polyester clothes in one garage, and beneath it, he could make out the head of a, of a, the neck of a guitar. He put the clothes aside, he looked at the guitar, and got him down to five bucks. Took the, took the guitar home and gave it to his eldest son, and he said, look what I picked up for you today, and he looked at it like, oh, thanks, Dad, whatever. But the younger son looked at it, and it came alive. You could see, like, he, he started to have a dream in his eyes. He started to look at it like it was precious, like it was the greatest thing he ever saw. He started playing that thing, started practicing, got lessons. Became pretty good. 
became even better. Started playing in bands here and there and then got played professionally and then got picked up by Carrie Underwood's band. So he's touring the country with this newfound calling he has in his life and he knew Bob Goff and knew where he lived and knew he was coming to the same town. He said, I wanna invite you to the concert. I'm gonna, I wanna give you a, con- a ticket to the concert. I want you to come. And goes, Bob goes, that's incredible. All right, I can't wait. What do I do? He says, you go to the arena, such and such a time, go to Will Call, tell him your name, get the ticket, and go in. So he did. Place is sold out. Standing room only. Gets inside and assumes, assumes, there's free ticket, last minute, starts heading to the upper deck. Cheap seats, nosebleed. He gets halfway up there and comes across a guy in a blazer and a flashlight, shows him his ticket, and the guy goes, man, you're in the wrong area. You're down lower, you're in the lower level. Goes back down to the lower level and runs into a guy in a blazer and a flashlight and they look at his ticket and he goes, man, you're in the wrong area. He's thinking, I gotta go back all the way up there. He's thinking to himself, I wanna get my steps in today. He goes, no, no, you're not up there. He says, you're further down here into the, into the arena area, the oval where, the, you know, where they play hockey. You're down there on the floor. He goes, oh my gosh. Gets down to the floor and the guy shows him his ticket and he goes, okay, go to the next guy. Goes to the next guy with a blazer and a flashlight and then he calls two other guys over to verify the ticket, to authenticate the ticket. They all three look at it and they look at him and they go like, okay. All Bob's thinking is, I want to hear Jesus take the wheel. That's all he wants. <laughs> so it, there's another thing that, that Bob has to go through, and now all of a sudden he's in his area. He doesn't technically have a seat, but there are seats he can sit in. He has an all-access pass. He can go on stage, front of the stage, backstage. I guess he could go anywhere as want, maybe even the bus. And he starts to look at this, and they said, you can even go in the mosh pit. And he looked in the mosh pit, and like, what's a mosh pit? And they go, well, that's, it looked like a bunch of people are just crammed in there like this. He said, they look like people about to be, in a blender, about to be turned on. They're just. <laughs> and he realized, I have an all-access pass to Jesus take the wheel, and I can go on stage. There was one place he could not go and that was center stage. Any other place in the arena? Go for it, man. You have total permission and access to go anywhere you want. You have an all-access pass. You know, that's the thing about life right now. Some of you are seasoned in your faith, others of you are starting out your faith, and others of you are in, in between those two realities. The fact of the matter is, we have to know where it is we stand. Where, where, where do you stand? Where do you sit in the arena? Where do you have permission to go? And who do you have permission to access? You see, you can say that the distractions are the television. You can say it's the internet. You can say it's this this hobby or it's work or you can say my distractions take me take me away from family they're, they're true they're, there's all they're all out there 
But there's a, there's a deeper distraction that has to be dealt with. It's not recreation, it's not golf, it's not t television, it's not sports. It's a deeper distraction. It's a distraction that, that speaks and wells up in you when you walk into the arena and assume you're in the second level. That I, I'm always a second level person and I always will be. I'm not like those down there. I don't have enough, I don't know enough, I don't have been around enough, I don't have enough clout, I don't know the right people, I'm, a, I'm in the outfield. That's a distraction. It's also a lie. We don't see it as a distraction because we take it everywhere we go. I'm too ashamed, or I don't know enough of the Bible, or... I don't know that I want to go to that Bible class. I've never been one before, and I don't want to look like a fool. That's a distraction. It's every one of those things that well up in us sometimes that say, you know what? This may say full access, but in reality, I'm a general admission girl. These are the kind of guys I date. These are the kind of places I go. These are my people. Those are not my people. This is my church. I couldn't go to that one. I couldn't learn from him. I couldn't learn from her. Those are distractions. Those are distractions of a monumental type. Uh, I don't have the right looks. I don't have the right uh, education. Those distractions keep you from the full access life that Jesus Christ has laid out for you and provided for you six hours before he ever perished. If you don't want to be distracted by the television, I got an idea. Don't tell anybody. Turn it off. I say that to you flippantly, but turn it off so you can find out what the real distractions are so you can turn those off. Hallelujah. My husband passed away. I don't really know what I'm going to do now. I'm just going to try to survive. No, you got to try to live. You got to live. You can go anywhere, do anything, be with anybody. You can learn, you can grow, you can try something new. The only place you can't do is go center stage. Do not bring an undue amount of attention to yourself. Don't steal the show away from the, the main singer, Christ himself. We got an opportunity to live here and the only thing keeping us from it is within us, our distractions. I've never sat that close before. Irrelevant. Get up there. I don't deserve those kind of tickets. This happens sometimes. When you go into a restaurant and they have a menu, I test you on this. If you really think this is the case, I t I'm, I'm, I'm really, really testing you, okay? When you go into a restaurant and it has a menu, I want you to realize something. You are the customer. They provide the product. You can deviate from something in the menu. Trust me. You don't have to order everything and pick off 12 things off your hamburger. You can order it the way you want it. Right? You know what I'm saying? You can, you can combine things I walk in there and it looks like arrogance, and it probably is. 
I combine three different dishes and just wonder how they're gonna price it. But you're the customer. You're there to enjoy what they have to offer. Deviate, it's okay, you can do that. You don't have to apologize. You are worth it. You don't need a nosebleed seat. You don't have to head for the rafters. You don't have a ticket, you have an all access pass. That's different. A ticket says sit there and don't move until we're done. Elvis has left the building, get up and leave. A pass says, yeah, go wherever you want, do whatever you want to do. We're, we're pleased to have you. See, do you approach the kingdom of God that way? Someone recently said to me, I know this man, he's homeless. He's unlike any other homeless people in this community. I, I know what he's like and I know what they're like. Some have a mental illness and maybe this, this is different. He goes, when I look at this guy, I know there's something dark in there. There's something dark going on. I know this guy is influenced by demons. She goes, I just, I really hope for someone who will go up to this guy and tell him about Jesus and lay their hands on him and pray for him. The most, most glaring mishap about the whole statement is that this person could do it themselves, but they don't sit, they sit in the cheap seats. They could do it themselves. They need someone else who has a better ticket. No. This is a priesthood of all believers. How do we remove? I'm blue collar. I'm white collar. We're distracting. We're distracting ourselves from the fullness of what God has for us. I have limits. I don't really know. I'm not there yet. You are there. You just don't realize it. What is within you that's keeping you from finishing your Lego set? What's keeping you from doing something really beautiful with your life, remaining days of your life, even more so than the beauty you've already seen in your life. What's new and exciting that brings you vitality, that gets you excited about thinking about the possibilities? What's distractionless look like for you? Because anything worth doing is going to have a multiplicity of distractions between you and it. Dream a little bit. Don't sing, he'll never let you down. And then live as though he's going to. That's not cool. That's confusing. And God's not the author of confusion. Live a little bit. Have some fun. Plan. For something exciting. Impact life, don't let life impact you. Build the kingdom, distractionless. And then you get sick. And you're weak and you're nauseous and you're going through therapy. That's not an excuse. It's not a distraction. It's an indication of where it is you minister from not a hiatus from doing anything to impact anybody. Jesus died and ministered in his death. Hello? There's a woman and I had the privilege of burying down there in central Florida who taught me how to be sick, going through 30 plus chemo treatments, 
I would call to minister to her and she would minister to me. I called to pray for her. She'd say very little and after the phone call was over, I said, man, I gotta call her again tomorrow because <laughs> I need that. She taught me how to be sick. She taught me how her disease was a platform in which she was going to build her husband up to live without her, to minister to her children. So I don't know, do you stand at a distance? I don't know. Are you taking it in from a distance? I encourage you, dive in, get reckless, take a risk. Everything you think is a risk right now as it, as it pertains to ministering to other people isn't a risk, it's probably normal. It's probably subdued. It's probably not a risk at all. The greatest risk that we take in life is to do nothing, to withhold ourselves, to stand too far at a distance, to think someone else is gonna do it. And it doesn't work that way. We can debate and have seminars about all day long about how appropriate it is to have spiritual gifts today or we can pontificate about our doctrine until the cows come home. In the meantime, the undistracted person goes out into the world and has lunch with somebody and realizes all of those gifts that everybody's arguing about are actually available to me right now because whatever gift I need to minister to this man is at my disposal because I have an all access pass. And I eagerly desire that. God eagerly desires it more. He will gift you and anoint you and empower you and speak to you and give you anything you need to minister to that person because he's counting on you to do it. He died so you could do it. Don't stand in the back. Don't, don't gaze from the cheap seats. Don't sit on the benches out in the outfield. Get in there and open your mouth and trust God to fill your mouth with words, of encouragement, of love, of counsel, of wisdom, of edification. Don't expect him to give you everything you need before you ever need it. He's in the business of doling out what it is you need as you need it, as you give it away. And that includes prayer, that includes prophecy, that includes ministering to the sick. You gotta get in the game. Just don't, whatever you do, stand at center stage. That's, that's serious. So our musicians come up, we're gonna close this service out. So I ask you this question, where is it that you are right now standing? Where do you stand with Christ? Where do you stand in him? Where do you stand in proximity to what he wants you to do? And the Lord answers that question for you this morning if you have any, any doubt. I'm standing behind this pulpit right now and I consider that a pretty serious thing because what, what I say behind this pulpit is pretty sobering. And I'm judged for it in the eyes of God more than when I'm not in this pulpit, James 3.1. This is a heavy responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. I don't take that lightly. So where am I standing? 
Well, looks like I'm standing behind this pulpit, this beautiful pulpit my friend in Atlanta made for me. But that's not where I'm standing. That's not it at all. I stand in the very same places you stand every day, whether it's a tea box or a green or a bridge club or wherever it is. Acts 7 and 33. The place where you are standing is holy ground. It's holy ground. See, I'm an ambassador for Christ, just like you are. I'm standing on holy ground. If I move this consulate, this embassy of the kingdom of God over here, now this is holy ground. The very authority I had there, I have here. I'm standing here. This is where my ticket brought me. This is where I have an access pass. I can move over here to a lunch date or play golf with somebody or I can talk with someone on the phone and I'm still on holy ground. I'm still a holy purpose. I still have something substantial to do with my life. And you're the same way. All right, that's enough. There's some Legos out there with your name on it. And it's gonna take a lot of focus. You gotta put them together. You gotta build something. You know yourself better than anyone, and if you, if you haven't noticed, everywhere you go, you go with yourself. And it's so difficult to leave yourself behind. You know yourself better than anyone. What are your distractions? What are those voices saying? How in the world have you given them the authority to tell you what to do and not do? Because if they have authority, in that area, Christ doesn't. Let's pray. We have access to the greatest life that could be ever lived, abundant life. Life more abundant, excessive, extravagant, overflowing. Hard to imagine. We have access to that. Not based on our own merit, not based on what we've done, but based on your grace and your spirit. And wherever we go, we, so goes the kingdom of God. We walk with an authority we entertain angels unaware. Your hand is upon us. Nothing can pluck us from your hand. The spirit was within us. We have gifts available at, at, at the drop of a hat, if ever needed, to minister to any and everyone at their point of need. We have authority to trample scorpions and demons. And if there's any distraction that keeps us from being who you've called us to be, why in the world would we want to embrace that any longer? Help us, Lord, be free of such, free of such contradictions, such contradictions. Give us a specialized love and anointing to live this life in its fullness and have access to do and to go wherever you say do and go under your authority and protection. And by the way, take care of those other distractions too. And would you help us to do it best for ourselves to make good decisions? In Jesus' name, amen.